Thanks for tuning in to Horizon Community Church's podcast. Our hope and prayer is that wherever you are, you would be encouraged by this message and be equipped to face any challenges that come your way. More information about Horizon can be found at www.horizonweb.org. Well, last week we started with this question, which we'll end with this question. We'll continue with this question. How can we best be faithful to our calling in a world where it will never be normal to be a Christian? It's not ever going to be normal. And we talked about a worldview, which is basically a way of seeing reality. And much like that video talked about, the worldview is analyzed by basically three different questions. Where did we come from and who are we? What, what has gone wrong in the world, the kind of the fall, and what can we do to fix it, the redemption of the world? And we talked about two basic, there are a lot of worldviews out there, guys, but we're just going to focus in on two, secular worldview and a biblical or Christian worldview. We said that a secular worldview was feelings are ultimate, the guy, our ultimate guide, happiness is our ultimate goal, judging is the ultimate sin, and God is the ultimate guest. We're going to talk about that today. Biblical worldview, Bible's the ultimate guide, holiness is the ultimate goal, mankind is the ultimate sinner, and God is the ultimate focus. And I said that some of you uh, are in the danger zone and don't even know it. Because that danger zone is when you take the worldview and then you've got the secular worldview and you pick and choose from either side to develop your own worldview. So it's a little bit of both. It's a smorgasbord, a la carte version. And we talked about that makes God throw up. Um, and makes him sick, according to Revelation 3. He'd, he'd wish you, you were one side or the other, but because you're choosing to mix it up, that makes God ill because that is not what a believer in Christ should be about. And my hope is as we work through this and continue to, we'll see what a biblical worldview is. Now understand something. If we were in Rome in the year 200 AD, you would be required to have three years of biblical training 144 hours of lecture, that included church, before you were baptized. Now, why would they do such a thing? Because they realized as a brand new Christian, you were entering a world that is against you. Every part of it is against you. That this worldview is not the po biblical worldview, is not a, a popular, it's, it's a very much a minority, and you needed everything possible to be able to take on this culture that you were entering. I wrote down, I said, what if that were a requirement for us today? How many people would sign up? I mean, we do have biblical training. You can go to Growing Strong, you can go to the Journey class. There are things we can do, but if we said that was a requirement before you ever get hit the water, you'd say, hey, what am I signing up for here? Because it's about preparing you. It's about getting you to ready to understand what is going to be attacking you from here as you share the truth about who God is out there in the world. So again, how can we best be faithful to our calling in a world where it will never be normal to be a Christian? The secular view, worldview sees God as a guess. That's where atheists, agnostics, atheists don't believe in the existence of God, agnostics don't know, and everyone's kind of a mixture of both in that view where God is a guess. 
The other side, the biblical worldview, is that God is the ultimate to be ser- focused, to be searching after. And so today I want to I talk, not only does God exist, we can say, yeah, God exists, that's the end of it. But can we prove that God exists? Does, does those who have a biblical worldview have anything to stand on other than the Bible says it, I believe it, and that's the end of it? The Bible does say it, but I think there's a lot that can go along when we talk about proof. Now, let me talk about proof here for a minute. Demanding proof of God, we will never be able to convince every, anyone. Uh, it doesn't matter what argument we bring. Doesn't mean how, it doesn't matter how sound it is, how airtight it is. People are still going to choose to not believe it. You run into people all the time that, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And you can prove it in front of them. But just say, uh-uh, I don't believe it. Perfect knowledge is beyond our ability. We will never have perfect knowledge. Bias and prejudice will cloud our view. There will always be a gap between what you can know and what we believe. And that's why that theme faith is involved. If you knew everything that was going to happen, would you need any faith? But people, when they say, well, I don't believe in faith. Guys, you, t- you, you step out in faith every single day of your life because you don't know what's going to happen. You step out in faith the minute, I didn't see one of you, and I watched, not one of you checked your chair before you sat down. Not one of you shook the legs a little bit and pounded it on to make sure it would bear your weight down. I do that pretty much every time I sit down. But you didn't because you trusted in faith. You, don't, you didn't know what's going to happen. You, you, you did that when you got up and when you got dressed and got in the car and come here. I mean, yeah, you're sure. I'm, I'm sure you're all safe drivers, 10 and 2 on the drive, and you all did the speed limit, maybe under the speed limit, you know, whatever it may be. But you don't know because you have another driver who can ruin everything. We exhibit faith all the time. And ultimately, to have a biblical worldview, it requires faith. Hebrews 11.6, and without faith is impossible to please God. It requires faith. Now, faith does not mean blind faith, because I believe there are things that we can hold on to, things that we're given. John 20.29 20, says, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. But neither can faith overcome, uh, faith in somebody, that they're going to overcome their, their just hatred or disbelief or whatever the emotion goes toward God. There's nothing I can do to jump over that. Even Jesus, when he faced that, he said in John 5, 39, 40, you, delight, uh, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. You, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And this secular worldview will push God to the side, and they really emphasize what we would call naturalism. And that's basically, this is the definition of philosophical belief, that everything arises from natural properties and causes. There's nothing supernatural out there. It's all by nature. We got here through a series of steps of evolution and ploop, here we are. There was a comedian who I, he's, he's funny, Rick Gervais. 
And he wrote an article in, in the Wall Street Journal, and this is what he said, which I think is, is really excellent, to tell you the truth. I've never heard, no one said this to me, but this is good. Since the beginning of recorded history, which is defined by the invention of writing by the Sumerians in 6,000 years ago, historians have cataloged over 3,700 supernatural beings, of which 2,870 can be considered deities. So next time someone tells me that they believe in God, I'll say, oh, which one? Zeus, Hades, Jupiter, Mars, Odin, Thor, Krishna, Vishnu, Ra? But then he goes on to say, if they say just God... I only believe in the one God. I'll point out that they are nearly as atheistic as me. I don't believe in 2,870 gods, and they don't believe in 2,869 gods. That's, that's really good. I mean, coming from someone, an atheist, I would, that, that's first I'd love to have a conversation with. He said, you know, basically, you believe in one God. I don't believe in all the other ones. I mean, what, what's the big difference between us? And in his mind, I guarantee you, he sees that religion is anti-reason. It's anti-science. It's anti-evidence. It's religion is childish. Religion is the result of brainwashing and to the point where religion is even harmful. There's a philosopher, Charles Taylor, who wrote a book called Secular Age. And this might describe you this morning. Everyone longs for meaning, but we encounter so many options that we often lack confidence in our own beliefs. We're haunted by the realization that any belief is contestable today. And it leaves us with a sense of unease. That sense of unease grows, within, grows when we perceive that more and more people are finding our own beliefs to be implausible. And that's exactly what's happening today for Christians. I guarantee you, the vast majority of us in this room can name a friend, a family member, someone close to you that has walked away from God. And given all the reasons why, and they think it's silly that you should believe these things, they're old-fashioned, you need to come up to the you know, 21st century in your beliefs about things. And it gets hard if we just stand on, the Bible says that I believe it and that's the end of it, to not realize, guys, there is evidence of the existence of God. There are things that we can tell people about. There are things that we proofs and clues that God has put himself in that points to himself. Number one, the evidence of morality. Emmanuel Kant said this, the moral law within and the starry host above are a testimony to those things. C.S. Lewis, who is an avid atheist, uh, professor, philosopher, and then became a Christian, and he wrote the book, Mere Christianity. It was, it was that book, even though it causes my brain to bleed when I read this thing. John Grinrod is a master C.S. Lewis fanatic, all right? He's read that thing I don't know how many times. I, I may can say I've read it once. I've read the first half of it a lot, and then it just gets harder and harder for me to get through. But it's good stuff if you're, if you're kind of wired a little bit more brainy, which is not much to say more than me. More than me. Um, but he puts in this, he says this, everyone has heard people quarreling something like this. How would you like it if everyone did the same thing to you that you do to them? 
this is my seed. I was here first. Leave me alone. He's touching me. Why should you shove in that place? Give me a bit of your orange and I'll give you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. He says, every day people say that. And his question is, where did that all come from? Where did this morality come from that we all pretty much agree is there? We have this sense that there's some standard out there that, you know, we may vary on some things, but man, you go from culture to culture, there are things that are just wrong from culture to culture. Where did this morality come from? And he would say, in order to have a moral law, you have to have a moral law giver. There has to have been someone who wrote this moral law on our hearts in the first place. Uh, I, I'm going to be a little chauvinistic here, so pardon me for a minute. I'm just going to ask the guys. Guys, how many of you here have a sister? Raise your hand. Have a sister. Okay. Got a sister. All right. How many of you have a sister that you like? Raise your hand. Okay. That was, uh, that was a half. Thing. Half. All right. So, Mike, you have a sister. What's your sister's name? Tammy. I should, I should not forget that. My sister's name, Tammy. So, Mike, if you don't know, Mike is a fisherman. I mean, he's, a, he's an avid fisherman. I mean, he wins tournaments and boats and all that kind of thing. You want to know fishing, you talk to Mike. And, and Mike, he's always wanted to go to the Amazon to fish the Amazon. I don't know if you knew that. That's like a dream trip for him. He stopped. And so we decided to go on a trip to the Amazon, Mike and I, to go fishing I mean, I pretty much go to smoke cigars and put a line in the water, but he, he, he wants to catch all these unique fish down there, and so we go. But his sister Tammy wants to tag along, and he likes Tammy. She likes to fish too, but she wants to see the jungle animals. So we plan a trip. We get down there. We're floating. We got our guys. We're floating down fishing, talking, and Mike and I are having a conversation, and the conversation is about whether truth is, if there's really a truth out there. And believe it or not, Mike believes, he really doesn't, but for sake of illustration, Mike believes that truth is relative. That your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and it would be wrong for me to put my truth on you. Because morality, where morality comes from, is basically cultural and, and all this stuff, and it really doesn't go from one place or one society or one culture or one family. It's basically something that I develop and evolve inside myself. And we're having this conversation. We're still fishing away that truth is relative. And all of a sudden, nature hits, and we have to go to the restroom. So the boats pull off, all three of us get off, me, Mike, and Tammy. We go walking, and Tammy hears some weird bird that she wants to find. And so we follow Tammy, and we come across this village, this village of just native people, and they are happy to see us. They come in, they're, yeah, they're, I mean, we can't understand their language. They don't understand ours. They're celebrating us and clapping away, shaking hands and patting us on the back. And they take Tammy, two women come up and take Tammy by the hand and walk her into one of the huts. Now, Mike's concerned because Mike loves Tammy. So what, what, what's going on? And through a series of hand motions and drawing pictures on the ground, we realize that they're taking Tammy to prepare her for dinner. Not to eat dinner, but to be eaten as dinner. Because in their law, their reality, their morality, they have a law that believes that when a stranger comes in and it's a female, they have the right to eat her. I look at Mike and say, so how does your philosophy work right now? You're going to let them eat your sister? 
Are you going to let him eat your sister? Because you believe, well, their truth is their truth. My truth is my truth. I can't put your truth. Now, if he didn't like Kimmy, go for it, you know. <laughs> Thank God. God answers prayer. There is a God. No, I would think that if he loved Tammy, he said, no, no, you can't do that. And I would immediately say, you can't say that. See, you believe that truth is truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. I can't put my truth on yours. You can't put your truth on me. You can't put your truth that they shouldn't eat your baby sister that you love because that's their truth. Because we all have this sense that truth is there. I mean, we all know when we see a child that is hurt or someone hurting the child, I'll go to jail. Okay, I'm just going to tell you right now, if I come in a situation and I see someone abusing a kid, I will probably be going to jail that day because I will not allow that to happen. Where'd that come from? Is that just my truth? Or is that pretty much a standard truth? Rape is a standard truth that's wrong. Murder as a standard is wrong. We call this Ukraine and Russia thing an unjust war. Where are we coming up with that term? Unless there's something written on our hearts that says, this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. Because God, who wrote all things, wrote that inside of us. Romans 2, 14, 15 says, indeed, when Gentiles do not, do not have the law, do by very nature the things required by the law, they're the law in themselves. Even though they do not have the law, since they show that the, that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences are also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing them, not even defending them. And I love this. By saying that the law was written on their hearts, Paul's implying there was a writer. There was someone who wrote it. Yes, when you people, oh, there's no proof of God. If you just talk about the morality aspect of what truth is, of where did this come from? Where, where was this written? Who, who thought of this in the first place? Why is it every culture and every society we go to, we see that unless God has written that on their hearts? If there is a moral law, then there is a moral lawgiver in the first place. Then there's the evidence of, I, I almost said cosmetology, but that's not it. There's evidence on who cuts your hair, does your makeup, uh, cosmology. Now, that's the stars above. There's a rule in science called contingency that reads this way. The idea is that if something begins to exist, its existence is dependent on something outside of it that preexisted it, causing it to come into being. Now, we would say, that's the prime mover, we would say that God caused everything to come into being. An atheist agnostic will say, no, the universe has always been there, has always been eternal. And yeah, that, that is not necessarily true either. We, we have telescopes up in the heavens, one brand new one out there, but the one that we've gotten photos, many photos, is from the Hubble telescope. I could spend all day just looking at that. Put it as a screensaver, just see the shots of just our universe and the magnificence of it. Well, it's named after a guy named Edwin Hubble, who basically had what they call the find of the 20th century. Because in 1928, he developed what we would call the Big Bang Theory. That this discovery that the universe 
had a beginning, or better yet, that the universe has a birthday. Now, whether you think the birthday was recent, whether it's 50 billion years ago, there's arguments to all that. Science has developed this Big Bang theory of it had an existence, it had an initial explosion, and all the galaxies are speeding away from each other. Einstein developed this even further, and, and if you've been here for any length of time, you've seen me take a balloon and put little dots on the balloon and begin to blow it up, and as I blow it up, the dots begin to expand away from each other. And that's been proven. The galaxies are indeed speeding away from each other, or as other people say, well, it's space that's increasing, the galaxies aren't moving at space, which, okay, these Star Trek people. Um, but we know that, and we know all the laws of dynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is that energy is winding down, that it's getting lesser than, and we know that they're slowing down, as it's called the second law of thermodynamics. And so, because the universe has a birthday, that means it had to be a beginning. And then the question, so how did that happen? Now, on the science part of the end, the secular scientists, the atheists and the agnostics, they'll say it's called the nothing hypothesis. And the nothing hypothesis is this. Nobody times nothing equals everything. Which most people go, huh? I mean, I, I think my little Hazel May would think that that doesn't make sense, Papa. What caused the Big Bang? Nothing. Did it happen? Oh, yeah. What caused it then? Nothing. It just happened. And so this is where, guys, when, when you're looking at biblical versus secular, oh, I need proof, I need evidence. Guys, I, I, if I'm giving this argument to someone, I'm not even bringing up the Bible yet. I'm just saying, guys, this is what science teaches us. Hubble, this is, this is cosmo cosmology. This is, this is how things are working. And you can say, well, there were two atoms. I'll go, then where did those two atoms come from? You're talking about nothingness, and all of a sudden, boom, it's here. How do you explain it other than saying something outside of it caused it? You don't have to call it God, but you have to call it something that caused this to take place. And to them, it's the nothing hypothesis. There was a guy, a philosopher, William Paley. He wrote in the 1700s. And he put it like this. Suppose you're walking down a beach, and as you come down the beach, you see a piece of bark sitting on the, on the beach. You would think to yourself, well, this piece of bark came from a tree somewhere. Either it fell into the ocean and all of a sudden the waves caused it and brought it to this place. So its origin is a tree somewhere. But if you continue to walk down the beach and you came across this watch, you would pick it up and you, would have to, you wouldn't have to think, you know, this just happened by itself. You wouldn't think that, oh, well, you know, the ocean and the currents and there's metal out there and they all came together and over time it kind of formed this watch and, and all of a sudden it begins to do this, that that's what, where that came from. No, any sane person would look at that, dude, somebody had to build that. That just didn't happen. And again, this is where science and philosophy begin to express what the Bible has been teaching from the very beginning. The probability of the universe coming into existence in the way that it has, as fine-tuned as, 
tuned it has, which I do not have time to go into all the how fine-tuned uh, our universe is. Scientists look at this and says, it's impossible if it's all by chance. Science has proven, astrophysics has proven this, that there are 122 variables that would all have to exist to happen in sequence. And none of those 122 variables could be off, and this is their statement, can even be off by one part of one millionth of a millionth. If any part was off during that time, the universe would have collapsed in on itself. It, this, I can't, you're not finding that stuff in the Bible. You're finding that in science. And even Stephen Hawking, uh, who passed away recently, and he, at least everything I've read and heard, he wasn't a believer in God, stated this. If the rate of expansion was one second, a, one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in one, 100,000 million millionths, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size into a hot fireball. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are religious implications. Science, again, guys, we all, you need faith to believe in the Bible. Guys, the where, you need faith to believe in science. So faith is existing. You don't want to use the word faith. But when you just look at the facts here, guys, Isaiah puts it this way. Isaiah 40, 26, lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Guys, when we talk about things like the laws of thermodynamics where Every atheist saying, yeah, all those exist. Guys, they existed after the fact, not before. The only reason we know they exist is what we've observed. They did not happen before that. They came into being during it and after it. The evidence of just in the cosmos is there to prove, guys, there's something bigger than you and I who's involved here. And that last evidence is the evidence of design itself. You've got the telescope, then you've got the microscope. Let me quickly, when you look at the DNA of an amoeba, single cell organism, the amount of information that's in its DNA would fill 30 volumes of an encyclopedia. When you look at one human cell in the body, it stretched out from end to end, just one cell, it's six feet long. Six billion letter codes, 3.2 billion base numbers. And even to see it, you'd need a specialized microscope, microscope. And if you were just to take time to dive into that aspect, which we don't have, guys, you are so close to taking one more step to the existence of God. There had to be a grand designer to make all this happen. It could not even evolve that way. And Jeremiah 1.5 before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you in place. The secular worldview wants to say, 
Well, our universe came about by luck and not design. Now, I play cards. I love playing poker. Um, and can anyone tell me what that hand is right there? Anyone? What's that? It's a raw straight flush. You can take a straight flush, raw straight flush. Now, I've played poker since I was old enough to know what cards were. I've never been dealt a straight flush. Now, I've been dealt a straight flush if you put wild cards in there. But if there are no wild cards, this is the best hand you can possibly have, a royal straight flush. I've seen it. I've never experienced it myself. But to be dealt a royal straight flush, it's one in 31,000 that you get a straight flush. And let's say you come to my poker table and I deal you out uh, a straight flush. We would all be celebrating, especially with no, no wild cards, because the odds of that happening are amazing. Now, we've set up decks before to deal out straight flushes to people, and it's been hilarious to watch their reaction, because we'll be dealing, and I've already got the, I got the deck set up. And the guy, I'm thinking of a card. Just give me one card. Well, I've already put the card in there, right? I don't cheat. It's a setup deck, all right? Yeah, when Hinton was here, he played poker with us. Remember Hinton with all the card tricks? He played poker with us. His only rule is that he can't deal. And he showed us, because I handed him my deck of cards. He'd shuffled it a few times and went ace, 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 ace. It was amazing. Give me that deck. You're not doing that. Right. <laughs> Here's the deal. You'd be, it'd be an amazing thing to be dealt a straight flush. But if I dealt you the next hand and you got a straight flush again, what are the odds of that? Well, the odds are everyone at the table was think cheating was involved. For you to get two straight flushes in a row. But then if I dealt three, cheating would definitely have to be in place because that just doesn't happen. Guys, when you take all these things involved, from the cosmos to the DNA to all this, the odds of it just happening, scientists say that's impossible. There had to be, they don't want to say it's God because then they're responsible to that. There had to be something that got this all moving some writer who put this moral law inside of us, some designer who built us the way we are, all this had to happen somehow, some way, not by luck. And when you look at the Bible, the Bible tells us clearly who's behind it. Because if I'm talking with somebody, I'm going to start not, well, the Bible says that I believe it, that's the end of it, which is true, but I don't usually start there. I want to start another place because there's plenty of evidence that point to something bigger outside of us that made all this happen. David writes it this way, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they put forth speech. Night after night they display Romans 1, 18 through 20, Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now watch this. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Now remember when Paul was writing this, people still thought the world was flat. There there wasn't telescopes or microscopes or anything like that. And God was saying to those people back then, look up. How can you deny that God? Look around. How can you deny there is a God? And I will say, can you prove God's existence? Yeah. You can go from the morality aspect. Just use that eat your sister example. I like that example. Evidence of cosmology, evidence of design, and evidence in the Bible that God exists. That there's a supernatural power, creator, designer that put this all together. And why is that important? One, it means that we matter. We matter. It means we have free choice, and that matters. How we live matters. Everything matters because we're not just an accident of space and time. There's purpose. There's rhyme. There's reason behind this of why we are here. As in in establishing a biblical worldview, I'm telling you, there's evidence that shows that God exists. He put it everywhere. And every time science looks deeper or farther away, it just proves God. Every time they dig something up, it just proves the Bible is true. Do not relinquish that truth that you have in a biblical worldview. Do not give it up. Realize you're there. If you want my notes and all these little things I've said, I'll shoot shoot them to you so you have them because this is something you just can't hear. And Okay, that Tim said about morality. Hey, do you want to eat my sister? No, that's not how it goes. Uh, Of where to use this, that when you have the ability to sit there and have a conversation, not an argument, you have an argument you already lost. Have a conversation about the truth to point people of why you stand where you stand. Guys, there's evidence that keeps you there. And ultimately, faith, because without God, it's, without faith, it's impossible to please him. It always requires faith. Father in heaven, I thank you that we do have things to stand on, that you put this evidence in the sky above, in the nature around, in our own bodies, in the cells that or in our, in our hands, in our mouth, and our head, and just everything, Lord, through our eyes that we see. Everything testifies that you are here, that you are real. Father, give us the ability to stand on these biblical truths and these scientific truths that you place there for us to use to show there is a God, that we matter, life matters, how we live matters, and that we can show this world the truth about who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name.